So turn to Acts chapter 17, please. We're in the book of Acts. We've seen what has been shaping in the realm of the church, the, the uh, struggles to get this gospel to all nations, and now we are fully in Paul's second missionary journey, and it is a time of evangelism explosion into the nations, that which God had promised from the beginning through Abraham, through what Israel was supposed to do, and it's beginning to take place. So we're in Acts chapter 17, and we see Gentiles being called into the kingdom. Verse 1, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Why would Paul have an interest to go into a Jewish synagogue, whatever city he went into? Why would he go into a Jewish synagogue first? before he preached anywhere else. Jesus told him to go first to Judea, Jerusalem. Anybody else? Anybody remember the book of Romans? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God, right, unto salvation. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Why first to the Jew? Because they were given the oracles of God and the judgment will come first upon those to whom much is given, much is required. They have the oracles of God, the law of God, the prophets of God. Paul understood this. The weight was on him to bring to his brethren the gospel, the Messiah of Jesus Christ. That's the first place he had to go to. Now it says he reasoned there. He spoke to them. And he was in Thessalonica. You can see it's way up north from where we're going to end up in Athens. But he went over, uh, over into Macedonia, over into Europe. And now here we are in Thessalonica. And he spent three Sabbaths. How much time is that? Three weeks. Three weeks. What's amazing is in three weeks he birthed a church in Thessalonica. Three weeks. What if we spent three weeks this year to birth a church? We could do it. Three weeks. Look at the scripture. I want to share with you 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul is writing to the church that got birthed in this movement. And he says, We know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. See, when you go into a city about evangelism, you don't know who's going to get saved and who's not going to get saved. You don't know that. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 got saved. We didn't know which 3,000 out of 100,000 people there. You go into a city, you don't know who's going to get saved. You preach to a crowd, you don't know who's going to get saved. One, two, maybe, it doesn't matter, but God called them that day. They're the chosen of God. God called them. They heard the word. It opened their spirit up to receive the Lord. And he says this, you, God chose you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. Paul preached the Word and the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Three things. The, the, the power, 
the Holy Spirit, and then a third thing is deep conviction. That's what caused this church to be birthed in three weeks. Conviction. Deep conviction. And it's something that we've lost in the church. It's something that we're not fully utilizing in our preaching. Conviction. We want to bring the ministry of power to people's lives. They need it. Healing, deliverance, they need it. Restoration. We need that power. We want the presence of the Holy Spirit to open their eyes that are blind to the gospel. The Holy Spirit to speak the truth of God's word. But what settles people in to come to salvation is conviction. Our hearts were pricked. You hear that term. Our hearts are calling us. What must I do to be saved? Said the Philippian jailer. Remember we studied that last week. Conviction. Don't worry about tickling their ears. Don't worry about someone being in agreement with you. They can agree all day long with you, but not be convicted of their sin. They might like the way you speak. They might think you're great. They might think you're beautiful. They, oh, thanks for coming. Thanks for bringing food. But if there's no conviction, so that is key. You can't force conviction. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit upon someone. So when you're out and about every day, pray that the Lord will use you with his power and lead you by his Holy Spirit, but that your words will bring conviction of the soul. This is one of the things that set Jonathan Edwards apart from any other revivalist. He had such a a holy presence and such a hunger in God that the revivals in New York were so overwhelming because this man was such a man of God. It's said that when he got on an elevator with other people, they would fall to their knees weeping and repenting of their sin, and he never spoke a word. Just the presence of weight of God's holiness that he carried, people felt it. There was such a revival in the city in Rome, New York, that they asked him to come to a factory. And when he walked into the factory, the men working on their machines and on the lathes and on on the stuff stopped. The entire factory came to a halt and there was a hush over them as they were convicted by the presence of God. This is what's going to bring revival. This is what's going to change a nation. This is what's going to change a city. Being convicted under the weight of his spirit. Amen? Pray for conviction. And that's what Paul says. Three Sabbaths they were there and it established a church because the power of God was there, the Holy Spirit and conviction. But look what it says. And Paul went in, as was his custom, three Sabbath days, reasoned with them from the Scripture. What do you think reasons mean? Get them to understand. Yeah, look at, look at what Isaiah said about this. Look at what Genesis says about the seed. Look at what uh, uh, Abraham was told. Look at, he's reasoning through Scripture, showing them. Okay? And they might be arguing, but he's reasoning. So he's Using the scripture, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Messiah. I prefer to use the term Messiah instead of Christ so that we get it rooted in the history of Judaism. And some of them were persuaded. How many? That's all you got to be looking for. We all want the big numbers. 
Just look for the sum. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, those are Gentiles, and not a few of the leading women. Here's, there's a, this is what's fascinating with Christianity. Christianity is now appealing to women as individuals before God. In Judaism, you were just part of your husband, you were part of the crew, part of the troop, you came along for the ride. But in Christianity, God is calling men and women, there's no difference between men and women, Jew or Greek, slave or free, all can come to Jesus Christ. And many of the devout women, many of the, well, it says this, it says leading women. These were leaders. The leading women came. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, must have been the guy over the Jewish synagogue, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, listen to this, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Who were they talking about? Yep. Paul, Silas, Timothy, right? Their, their reputation preceded them. Heard about them. And what was the news about these guys? Turning the world upside down. Now, wait a minute. Turning the world upside down? I don't know about the, you, but I've been reading and in almost every city they get stoned, they get beat, they get put in prison, they get kicked out of the city. They should be riding in a Cadillac, waving, and everybody's going, you're the best, we love you. They were rejected in every city, but there were those who were convicted and saved through the preaching of the gospel. And it was turning the course of cities around. The heavenlies were being torn down as the gospel was being preached. Stop looking for the numbers. Stop looking for some big response. Get the few and it's going to turn this world around. Let's keep preaching. Don't get discouraged. Paul didn't quit. So Jason and the brothers are dragged out and Jason has received them and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there's another king. Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. They can't stop this. So, make them pay. Fine. But the church of Thessalonica was formed. And it was a powerful church. And we have First and Second Thessalonians written because of this church. And so the preaching is proclaimed. Now let's go on. They now move to uh, Berea. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now you had a great outcome in Thessalonica. He's saying the Bereans were even more noble than that. 
They heard that word and received it. Interesting in Thessalonica, there's this deep conviction. In Berea, there's a deep knowledge of the word. Okay? That would be like if you're preaching and you went down south in the Bible Belt. Right? Georgia, down south and along this Bible Belt. Because the Bible is common taught, common knowledge, common reference. They may not be saved, but a lot of people know all the scriptures and you begin preaching it and the Holy Spirit moves on them and they're like, we know this. And they give their hearts to the Lord. So Berea, you hear this term quite often, the Bereans are people who study to show themselves approved, people who study the word of God. Do I have any Bereans here today? Who studies the Word of God every day? Who reads the Word of God every day? Amen. Amen. Or listens to it on your phone or whatever. Get that Word in you. You're a Berean. You're studying. Now, these Jews were more noble. They received it and searched the Scriptures and believed it. Many of them therefore believed. This is many versus some. With not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Why are we doing this? Why does Luke keep focusing on these women? Yes, Christianity brought great liberation to women, elevated their position in society, but also in marriages. All right, so Christianity is huge as an impact into women's lives. And Luke keeps making reference of this because, again, he's pointing out in the gospel. There was a prayer that a Jew would pray every day. A Jew would wake up every day and pray this, God, maker of heaven and earth, I thank you that I am not a woman, but a man. I thank you that I am a Jew and not a pagan. I thank you that I am free and not a slave. That was a regular Jewish prayer daily. That's why Paul wrote that very specific phrase, I believe in Galatians, where he says, there is now therefore no male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave or free, in Christ Jesus. We are all one, right? He was directly dealing with that Jewish mindset. Now, the women, Greek women of high standing. Why, how about this? The leading women and women of high standing. So these are women with power, women with authority, leading women. What will happen if you get leaders saved? They'll reach to everyone else. This is a good strategy, Holy Spirit. When I was in China, uh, I had to minister in one setting to underground pastors, and I had a room full of 26 pastors. 23 of them were women. When I talked to the Chinese leadership there and said, how come women are uh, pastors and so successful here? He said, because we are house churches. Who knows how to run a house? Who knows how to speak in, a, in, a, in house meetings? Women. Women, they communicate, they gather, they nurture, they disciple. And so that's why Holy Spirit's calling prominent women because they're going to move forth and bring the gospel. When the Jews at Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. This is reference to Paul's thorn in the flesh. 
Remember Paul prayed, God, would you please remove this thorn in the flesh? Some people think it's a sickness or a disease. That's not what the issue was. The thorn in the flesh was the people who were following wherever Paul preached and was planting churches. They were coming behind him trying to destroy every work that he had planted. And Paul prayed three times, God, deliver me from this thorn in the flesh. He would get beaten, he would get bruised, but remember he said, I went into the third heavens and saw things no other men can see or say, and God gave a spirit to come against me to keep me humble. So Paul never got arrogant because he kept getting beat down, literally. But because of it, the gospel flourished. And because of this thorn in his side, them coming against his uh, teachings continually, he had to write back to the churches and correcting them with correct doctrine. And that is what creates two-thirds of our New Testament. That thorn in the flesh for Paul was what wrote our Bible for us. So I don't know what you're struggling with or what enemy is fighting you, but many times you standing through it becomes the witness and testimony that's delivering somebody else. Amen? The brothers immediately sent Paul off to the sea and Silas and Timothy remained there and uh, Paul headed down now to Athens. And here in Athens... We come to the intellectual center of the then known world, where all the Greek philosophers were. Verse 16, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. What do we call that? Street evangelism. Anybody done any street evangelism lately? Oh, there's two right there. Two Ecuadorian missionaries. What is street evangelism? Just hanging around, speaking to whoever you can preach the gospel to. Sometimes it's very deliberate. That's what I'm going to do. Sometimes it's what you do because you're at the store today. Wherever you go, you are enlisted And you've been called tonight. I can't get past what this altar call was about. You heard the words of the Lord prophesying. You've been called to speak. This is what we're to be doing. And and he, he was just hanging out there. Amen. We are equipped. Look at what it says here. It says, His spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was full of idols. Is anybody here provoked? I I, I preached a a sermon, vexed. Is anybody here vexed about the condition of our culture? Is anybody here sick and tired of walking around and seeing all this, this mess of stuff and being provoked to say something? Everybody else is saying something. And he said this, He reasoned in the synagogue with Jews, devout men, and then he went out into the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign uh, divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. So they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? 
For you bring strange things to our ears. We want to know, therefore, what this, these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing else except telling and hearing something new. Areopagus was this place where they would share news information and the latest philosophies, doctrines, and ideologies. So here's this Jewish guy who's also uh, a Roman citizen telling us this other stuff. We want to hear what he's got to say. This is interesting. They give him a platform. Give Paul a platform and what will he do? Preach. How about you? We have a platform Get a platform and preach. Amen? Now, before we get into what he preached, let's see uh, verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some of them mocked him. Others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went from out of their midst, but some, how many? Some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Epigrophic, and uh, a woman named Demarius and others with them. Seems like Luke, every time he mentions men, he's got to mention a woman too. Can I get an amen from the women? Amen. Amen. Now it's interesting, he says this, they mocked him. The the Greek word there for, for mocking is to be bitten by a snake with venom. All right, this isn't a little bit of taunting. This is spitting and cursing and saying, this, get this, he's speaking poison. Get this guy out of here. All right? Don't fret the resistance. Don't cower back because they may not like you. Twyla got cursed out tonight because she was telling me before the service, Uh, as she was doing DoorDash, she delivered a meal and said, God bless you, and the man went off on her, cussing, there is no God, I don't know why you say there's a God, spewing uh, vile cuss words and everything he could at her. So who was spitting out of her? I mean, who was spitting out of that man? The devil, man, that dude was just filled with demons. And she got in her car and began to intercede and pray for that man. There's times when you should argue with someone and try to reason with them. And there's other times you go on and call on the Holy Spirit to do his work. Amen. Don't shrink back from speaking. And don't worry if they don't get saved and you don't see them say the sinner's prayer and they don't fall on their face and repent. You're planting seeds. Here, every city they went to, some would get saved. Many would resist. That's the equation here. All right? Look at the difference here between how many are in this room and how many are at Walmart. (laughs) There's a difference. You're here because you've been convicted and called of God. But we're going to win some. And those some will win Some. And those some will win some. And it will get there. What we're learning from this is that this message turned the world upside down. It wasn't Paul. It was the message of Jesus Christ. 
personally being spoken and reasoned and taught to people. There was the conviction that they had, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We don't see any signs and wonders being spoken of here. This is pure evangelism. This message works. Do you know why it works? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. I don't know how many times I've witnessed to people thinking, I blew that so bad. Why didn't you use someone else, Lord? Anybody ever been there? I don't know. I didn't get through. I didn't say what I wanted to say. I should have said this. They said that. And I've heard a report back that people get saved because of what I said. And it's like, what? Are you kidding? But it's not us. It's the Holy Spirit. Just be used by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to go over this sermon. It's probably the most um, amazing, astute sermons that you can read and follow as an outline. It's beautiful and amazing. So let's go there at verse 22 of chapter 17. I know I'm mostly teaching tonight instead of interaction, but I just feel that this is a lesson for us to learn. All right. First of all, let me say this on your outlines. I put a verse by Peter, 1 Peter 3.15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Holy means to separate him from all other things. In your heart, Jesus should be understood as king and holy apart from everything else. And then it goes on and says this. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. All right? It wouldn't have helped the gospel if Twyla would have started cussing back at the guy and yelling at him and throwing things at him. (laughs) That wouldn't have worked. So with all gentleness and respect, we're still to respect even the people who hate us. And with gentleness, we preach the gospel. We preach the gospel. They might hurt us. They might hate us. They might spit on us. They might get us. But we represent Jesus, not ourselves. With gentleness and respect. Always be prepared. Any Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts? Always be prepared. What do you think that means? In season and out of season, Paul says to Timothy, you're on. You're on call. Everybody here, you're on call 24-7. Be prepared to do what? Make a defense. The Greek word for defense there is apologeo. An apology. Not I'm sorry, but a, a constructed understanding of what the gospel is. They want to know why you have hope. With all that's going on in the world, why are you Christians unmovable? Why do you still have peace? Why do you still have joy? What is it about you? You're on. Here's your platform. They asked. You can tell them. Give them a reasoned understanding for the gospel. Do you know the reasoned understanding of the gospel? We're all sinners. Jesus died for sinners. Repent and be saved. Ask Him into your heart and life. It's really that simple, but we can reason it out. 
They'll ask a million other questions. Get back to the one that, what, what do you say about Jesus? Amen? All right, let's look at this glorious gospel. It is beautiful, it is glorious. Let's look at Paul's presentation. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus. Sorry. Standing in the midst of the Areopagus. Now, the first thing he's going to do is, and this is always a, a, a smart move, he compliments them. He wins them. Instead of standing in opposition to them, he wins them. Let's see what he says. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Genius. So he walked around that city for a couple days, didn't he? He was disturbed by all the idolatry. He's thinking about it. He's seeing all these people bound by these false idols and demons. He's troubled by it. And I'm imagining the Lord begins to speak to him. And begins to show him things. And that's why we have to have an open ear to the Spirit. And he comes along one other one. These people are so religious and want to make sure that they represent every God. They have an idol to the God they don't know. Boom. There it is. Okay. So with that opportunity he says, Why? I can see you are very religious people. Wow. And you have... All these different statues and idols. And I've noticed that there's one to an unknown God. And he's the one I'd like to tell you about. Amen. Got my ear. Now he goes on. And the first thing he talks about is God is creator and sovereign. This is going to be key in the last days. This is key for all of us as we're preaching the word of God. When we're dealing with the issues of gender identity and sexual morality and all, all other issues, issues, we can come back to creation. Because creation preaches for you. Creation preaches for you, doesn't it? Doesn't it display all the handiwork of God? There is order to it. There's purpose to it. So he begins and he says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Now these, these people are very religious people, so they're probably going to go, okay, yeah, that's right. Nor, do, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he's declaring the sovereignty of God as creator. And that again draws them in even further. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need you to put food in front of the idol's feet. He doesn't need you to pray to a statue. He doesn't need you to do anything for him. He's the creator. He made all things. And then he goes on and he says this, bringing it to them personally. 
Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. He's saying God did this so that you would find him. God is causing you to seek Him. He is speaking to their desire to know God. Every human heart is desiring to know God. Every human heart wants love, wants joy, wants peace, wants meekness, wants faithfulness, wants gentleness and goodness. They all want that. And all of that is the fruit of God's nature. Everybody wants God and they don't know it. And he's saying God had set the course. This is an amazing verse. Paul is digging deep. In fact, uh, I'll share with you what he's doing here, but let's go over it again. He made from one man every nation. Who's that one man? Adam. Adam. He made from one man every nation. Everybody came out of Adam. King James says he made out of one blood. Which speaks to us about the fallenness of mankind. The blood that was tainted and has passed on. Every nation to live on all the face of the earth. Who determined the allotment of times and periods and boundaries. He set up the boundaries of every nation. You ever look at a map and wonder, why did they draw that like that? And why does this nation over here? It's because God set them up that way. And so God set the periods, the calendars, the times, and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why? So that they would seek God in hope that they might feel their way. How do you like that? Find their way towards him. And find him. And Paul's saying, and that's why I showed up today. You want him. You're looking for him. You can use this. When you're talking to someone, you're looking for joy. You're looking for love. You're looking for purpose. You're looking for a meaning to your life. Today, you found it. It's Jesus Christ. Draw on what's been drawing on them. Now, he is actually speaking about Deuteronomy 32. And that is not 8 to 98. It's verses 8 through 9. (laughs) When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, he divided mankind. He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion in his people, Jacob, is his heritage. Judaism believes that after the Tower of Babel, God tried to fix things, and when the son, what are sons of God? Angels. Angels are sons of God. They're direct creations from God. So before Jesus came, any reference to a son of God is a reference to the angelic realm. 
They intermingled Genesis 6 with mankind, and that's because of, the fall, because of that fall and because of the corruption of the DNA, God had to destroy mankind in order to save one clean family to bring the Messiah through. That was Noah. It failed again at the Tower of Babel, and he separated them by their languages. And it is, is at this place where God then did a new thing in the earth. He set the boundaries of nations and allotted the people groups to angelic beings. Number of nations are based on the number of the sons of God, the angels that oversee the different countries. We see this in Daniel chapter 9 when the angels are coming and Michael had to fight against the prince of Persia, the principality over that district. He said, there's one nation that's mine. I'm going to deal with this one nation. What nation was it? Israel. He was going to deal with that one nation to bring the Messiah so that it would be a light to bring all the nations back. And in the meantime, all those nations were going to be watched over by the watchers, the angelic realm. I'm just giving you the cosmology of earth. Okay, let's go on. Verse 27. Now he goes this. For in him we live and move and have our being, and even some of our own, your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So what he's, what he's saying now is he's quoting their own poets and their own writers. They're famous ones. So when you're witnessing to someone, you're telling them about the God of creation who has set all things in order, but man has caused it to fall out of order. But you're being pulled and drawn to want to know the love, want to know destiny, want to know purpose. And God is pulling you towards him. And today I'm telling you about Jesus. And you still haven't found what you've been looking for. I just quoted you too. You got that? You got that reference? Okay. See, he, this is genius. Paul is using their own famous writers. I mean, he could be quoting right now, I don't know, Beyonce. But I don't think that would be super intellectual, so we'd have to go to somewhere else. I don't know, Jordan Peterson, maybe the, referencing somebody else, but he's saying what is famous and he's hooking them in by what they watch and listen. He's captivating them. He knows their culture. Paul studied Greek philosophy. He studied the poets. He understood the times that he was living in. He knew how to catch them. Does this make sense to you? And as he draws them, now he's ready to personally deal with them. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Because he spoke about the resurrection at that point, he gets interrupted, the mob goes nuts because he said about being raised from the dead and they stop Paul from speaking. But it's okay because he said enough. 
Do you see what he did in this last statement? He made them accountable. Stop serving these idols made of silver and gold and metals. At the past, God used to look at that stuff and forget about it, but now he's commanding all people everywhere to what? Repent. We're back to conviction again. And he said, you need to repent because God has fixed a day when you will stand before God and have to give an account. And he proved it by raising Jesus from the dead. Now they are there and they have to make a decision. Will I repent or not? And so this is what evangelism is. This is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It declares the holiness of God, who he is. It talks about God's plan for mankind and drawing people in. He talks about them understanding the times and where they're living and realizing that God has now called them to repent. All people, everywhere. If Paul said that back then, is it true today? It is our job to call all people to repent. And there's only one name under heaven by which men can be saved. Jesus. Despite what people say about us, despite how they ridicule us, despite how they frame us on TV or in the movies, we still speak to the same thing. Repent, repent, repent. The kingdom is at hand. Amen? There is a solution for our sin. It's Jesus Christ. At this point, they kick him out, they get rid of him, except one guy follows him, and one woman that they mention, and a few get saved. We don't understand the numbers. We're all looking for major, major moves of God. One soul coming into the kingdom is a major move of God. So, speak the gospel. Tonight I felt very strong to simply teach this evangelistic word. I didn't plan for us to come to the altar. That was totally God, and I certainly didn't plan people to say it's all about evangelism. We've got to get serious, people. And I believe you are, because you came to this altar and you heard the words of the Lord. Don't shrink back. Go tell them. Don't worry about the results. You're not going to be liked but preach the gospel and some will be saved. Let's bow our heads.